Welcome to the Tej Talks Podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Greetings. Welcome to another episode of Tej Talks. Obviously, you know that because you clicked on my yellow name on the thing. Um, I recently found out, actually quite a few weeks ago now, that I'm in the top 0.5% of all podcasts in the world. And I think there's something like just under 2 million podcasts. Uh, it's, it's by this independent website who rates it on like engagement, how much of an episode people listen to, listen to accounts, review, all this kind of stuff. I also have the most reviews of any UK property podcast, including those that have been going on for a long time. Hmm, That's pretty awesome. And, and thank you so much for, for delivering the goods. I appreciate it. So on today's show, we have David Lenton. Now we are talking about well, essentially, how to spend your money. Uh, David started off with a million pounds in cash. Now, look, not everyone is going to be in that situation. Of course not. But does it mean you can't obtain that, right? Doesn't mean that these lessons don't apply to you. So don't be put off by the title. This is a really interesting discussion on how to utilize your money, how to de-risk it. And we also kind of, we go into some detail actually about buying properties unencumbered. So with pure cash and leaving them unencumbered, and what kind of yields you can get off that versus a mortgage. So it's quite an interesting discussion, you know, quite a strategic one, actually, about how to spend your money and the kind of returns that you can look to get. If you haven't already, check out my e-learning, tedgetalks.learnworlds.com. David, welcome to the Tedge Talks podcast. Thanks for having me on, Tej. I'm looking forward to this one because it's quite different to, I think, the usual that I that I kind of have on the show and I think you know I'm thankful for your email that you sent me beforehand as well because there's there's so much we can talk about and I think perhaps when people see the description of this episode they might think that it, you know it may not relate to them because of maybe some of the figures we're talking about here however as we both know the lessons you've learned and the experiences you've had are going to be similar to the ones I've had in a sense but you're going to have an extra level of challenges and, and problems and things to talk through. So I think this is going to be a podcast for anyone who at any level in property, whether you're starting out, you've got loads of cash, you've got no cash, whatever it is, we, you know, we have a lot to talk about today. And we've got some topics that, you know, I think commonly maybe said things like unencumbered properties, which, you know, the kind of wisdom generally is what you're doing, leverage everything, get a better return. But we're going to kind of talk about things like that. But before we get into that, David, you have an interesting history as well. Um, you know, tell me, I suppose, you know, maybe from sort of university until now, what have you kind of been up to? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I guess I had a kind of non-standard, shall we call it, um, route into property. Um, I did go to university, but school was always a real problem for me. I was kind of encouraged to go to uni by my parents. Um, and I ended up dropping out after, I think it was about a year and a half of studying a history degree. God knows why. Um, why I even started down that path um, and ultimately dropped out to become a professional online poker player, um, which I don't know, today might sound like a bit of a surprising thing, but back 10, 11, 12 years ago, whenever it was, there was still a kind of poker boom around and it wasn't the most unusual thing. Um for people to do, although I'm, you know, I'm not trying to say it was standard. It definitely wasn't 
Um, and I did that for a few years. Um, and it, you know, it went well, it was, it was a really exciting career, but it kind of started to dawn on me that I was going to need to do something a little bit more in line with the mainstream world, shall we say. Um, and from that career, I had met a few people who were building, um, affiliate marketing websites in the online gambling sector. And from there, I kind of got mentored by um, a couple of people specifically, um, who I'm, I'm definitely indebted to today still, but, and ended up transitioning out of poker and into affiliate marketing. Um, and from there started a company, which we still run today, um, which basically focuses on that affiliate model. Um, we run a network of websites. So we do quite a lot of search engine optimization. Um, and interestingly, it's that business that really funds the property business that we've started. Um, I guess in terms of how we actually ended up in property, it's kind of, it's on the back of the regulatory landscape within the gambling sector at the moment in the UK. Um, It's definitely changing. Um, And also the way that business works is we attract traffic from search. And I, I mean, you probably know yourself, Google will update its algorithms on a you know semi maybe a quarterly basis and sometimes the impact of those updates can be huge on the amount of traffic that you're receiving and we really wanted to kind of diversify our income stream and not be solely reliant on google as being the sort of omnipotent decision maker in how well the business was going to do um quarter to quarter so from there we kind of decided in 2017 2018 that we wanted to start a property investment business um to run alongside and and that's kind of what we've been doing ever since really i see interesting okay you know i think uh, when i saw your email with the seo and the affiliate marketing i thought because i used to work in recruitment and i remember some of these names especially bet365 like how much they were growing their like tech side and so it took me back to those days but great business especially 2010 and even now but you know, property, what was it about property that, and and was there a, I don't know, a book or a a pot, you know, was there something that kind of kicked you into property or was it something you always wanted to do? Um, I don't think there was a specific, you know, like one specific thing that I could identify. Um, I think what I would say is around the time when we, we'd been hit, by um, one of the updates. I mean, it's happened several times. It's kind of, uh, you know, it just happens if you're in that industry. But as you get, as time goes on, it becomes more arduous to to go through that experience. And we wanted to build some income streams outside of that. So we really just researched and looked for opportunities um, and property made a lot of sense. I mean, it's a great place to store your wealth um, it's also, you know, good returns are possible depending on the strategies that you employ, um, returns that are better or at least comparable to sort of more passive, um, stock market investments that you can make. So it was more, um, definitely had an interest in property, but it stood out as a, a kind of a safe haven and something that, you know, could be a truly passive income stream that once set up would really allow us to run two businesses without having too much of a time intensive requirement. Mm, Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, getting into property, there's 101 strategies. There's so many areas to invest in. There is, you know, there's so much to think about. And 
everything seems pretty awesome. You know, I always say like every strategy is shit, but every strategy is also amazing. So <laughs> like, you know, how did you know what to start with? And then also take us into what your first deal was. Sure. So uh, we didn't know what to start with is the answer. Um, we did a lot of reading around the subject. Um, when I say we, I mean me and my wife, she really came on board with the idea of kind of being involved in that business um, from the outset, which is great. Um, so it was more a case of looking at what sort of returns were possible and trying to maximize the returns on our capital based on um, a kind of a passive model or with the model being as passive as possible years down the line. Um, and initially I think we, you know, we opted for a, a standard one bed buy to let. Um, that's, we've still got that now. Uh, that's in Gateshead just outside of Newcastle. Um, we bought it for 70,000. I think we did about a 12,000 pounds refurb on that. Uh, we did a lot of the work um, kind of ourselves. So it was a very hands-on, it was a good learning experience. Um, it rents out at 550 per month um, since the work was done, which is, is, is fine um, on reflection. It's not the best property we've got in our portfolio return-wise, but it felt like a good starting point. And to be brutally honest, we'd spent six to eight months looking to get on the board in terms of looking to just buy something and begin this kind of process. So we, we kind of just jumped in because we wanted to as much as, you know, we thought it was a reasonable deal. Obviously looking back, would I do that deal again? It's hard to say no, because we learned so much, but at the same time, I don't think the numbers from that deal are going to impress anyone. Um, I mean, you know, it was a, we ended up, Obviously, we buy unencumbered, but had we refinanced, there, there wouldn't have been any money to pull out of that deal. We'd have had to leave the full deposit in. Um, unencumbered, it returns at just over 7%, uh, 7.17 on my latest numbers. And you know, just for some comparison, if that was in on an interest-only um, mortgage of you know, 80, 20 loans of value, that it would be a 19, just well, just under 20% return or yield. Mm. Okay, so three times as much safely, j just about three times as much, which is is interesting. And then it leads me to my question, which is why buy it unencumbered, or why no, sorry, why hold it unencumbered? Sure, um, I think it is a really good question. Um, for us, initially, we had a large chunk of capital that we were looking to invest. So um, as I don't I can't remember if you said in the, in the intro, but we had about a million pounds that we were looking to deploy into property over the course of, you know, building that business. So there, you know, 70,000 pounds still, we still had a lot, a lot of capital to play with. Um, so we didn't need the money back out. And it's a, it's a place to store the money. That's not just in cash in the bank. I mean, I don't know how your listeners will feel about having cash in the bank, but cash in the bank is not something that I'm particularly fond of in the current economic climate um, with the potential for, you know, the erosion of the value of that money when it's just sat doing nothing. Um, so for me, it's it's better in a property for one thing, and we didn't need the money back out to move on to our next project. 
um, you know, which was another reason why it got left in there ultimately. I see. And I don't think we touched this yet, but you started off. So when you got into property, you started off with a million pounds cash that you had to deploy, right? Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the marketing business had built up quite a reasonable level of cash within it. And we decided that, you know, that our two options were reinvest in that business or reinvest in a new business. And obviously we, we chose to go down the property route. So, um, you know, we, we put together a reasonably complex corporate structure, which allowed us to move the money, um, dividend it out of one company and into another. Um, so it was, it was essentially just sat there in the bank waiting to be deployed. And kind of one of the, one of the key considerations there as well is that when you've got capital that's not deployed like that, there is quite a large opportunity cost associated with that. So the money is sat there doing nothing. Not only is it not earning you money, um, being invested whilst also potentially losing your money in the bank. So you're losing by you're losing out by having it just sat there and also you're losing out on all the potential money that it could earn. Yeah. And you know what, that's something that I think people maybe don't think about, you know, when they're I mean obviously you need a period of learning and you know making decisions and, and understanding at the start, but there's an opportunity cost in leaving there. And also and you know this again can going back a little bit to what we said there's an opportunity cost for people leaving it in an asset unencumbered. Obviously there's actually an opportunity within that as well, which we can get to, but for people who need it back out or who want to buy four at once and instead of just one, there's an opportunity cost there. And I suppose even if we go further back, if you buy it with a hundred percent of your own cash, instead of say a bridge or whatever it is, there's another opportunity cost there that that one you know, chunk of cash could get you three houses instead of one. So I think this opportunity cost is something that I think when people start out, they don't realize as much, but it applies to well, almost all action that you take, even on your time, um, that there's a value and therefore there's a, a potential opportunity cost there. So. Sure. Yeah, definitely. That, that, that's actually a really interesting way of, of framing it. Um, in that there is an opportunity cost with the money that's sat within the building, but you could argue that capital appreciation, um, you know, would offset that opportunity cost somewhat. Um, but also the, you know, you, on the flip side of that, you could argue that while well, having it invested in another property would allow you to benefit from that capital appreciation, you know, rolled over multiple times. Um, it, what, honestly, one thing that it boils down to is it's quite actually quite difficult to deploy that much capital capital leveraged in one go quickly. Um, I, I guess you could jump in and buy, um, you know, a large sort of buy into a large new development or something like that. But we were really keen to keep our um, ROI numbers as, as high as possible. And I think to do that, it, it kind of does mean that you have to look at property that's on the cheaper side. So, you know, deploying a million pounds leveraged means, wow, it means a lot of property very quickly. Yeah. I mean, did you consider at the time, you know, looking for portfolios, just buying them all at once? Honestly, no, because I think it's a it, it's a bit of a scary prospect in that you have no experience. And looking back, I'm glad we didn't go that route because we learned so much, even from the first deal and all the subsequent deals that we've done. You know, I, I could potentially buy a portfolio now with a high value, knowing much better what I was getting. But at the time, making that assessment, being new to the industry, I think would have been a fairly high risk strategy 
Um, others might argue that, you know, it would have allowed us to deploy the capital quicker um, and make more money long-term, but I definitely err on the side of caution when it comes to investing large chunks of money. So it was much more comfortable to sort of build it slowly. Mm. And was it ever tempting with that mill to be like, mm, let me just go back to poker and like 10 X or something? No, that's not how that's not how it worked, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> that's what the movies say. That must be the truth. It's really not the truth, though. I think um, I think you can you can make an amount of money as a professional online poker player, but unless you become absolute elite world level, you know, you can far eclipse that with the money you can make in property. And to be honest, you can often eclipse the money you can make in poker and in property with the money you can make by running an, an actual, see, I don't want to say an actual business because property is an actual business and many people have great property businesses, but the margins are slim in property. And I think until you've run a business, maybe in a different industry, it's it's kind of not appreciated within the property industry, but margins are slim and returns can be eradicated very quickly. I agree with you. I had a recruitment business before this and, you know, like, I think, yeah, I kind of look back at, I mean, yeah, it was, it was putting in my time for money. So different kind of approach, um, compared to holding assets. But I just think, wow, I, I still didn't necessarily put in as much time as I might on a flip. And you still make five, 10, 20, something make a hundred grand for recruiting one person. And, yeah, I hated it, but bloody hell, when, when it's done and the invoice lands, you're kind of like, eh, did I hate it that much? So, <laughs> you know, it's an interesting parallel there. And I definitely think if you're in property and you haven't had another business, you know, consider doing it at some point because it, it's fun. Um, it's different. It's challenging. And as, as David and I are saying, you, you know, you could potentially make more money depending on it, but obviously it's a different kind of thing. So you're there with a mill. You bought your first property. Um, you know, since then, has everything been purchased and held unencumbered or cash or has anything changed in your strategy or your approach? So at this point, no, nothing's changed. Um, I think we've managed since that point to invest somewhere in the region of 970,000 across the entire portfolio. So we're still not actually fully spent up, you could argue, but I would say we've got about £350,000 worth of development ongoing at the moment. Um, I guess all I can say in response to that is that the other business still performs well enough to fund this business unencumbered. However, if we do want to continue to grow our portfolio into, you know, within over the next five years, we are quite probably going to have to look at... Um, you know, releasing some of the money that's that's stored within the properties at present. Mm. And, you know, when you, when you had this mill or when you were started, and I suppose even now to an extent, what kind of, I mean, I suppose there's quite a few, but what kind of main considerations did you have? Because I think anyone listening who has one, 10, a hundred, however, you know, thousands of pounds it is, there's always going to be, you know, key things that we need to consider before deploying our cash. And of course, again, if you have zero, 
but you have 100k of investor cash, same thing, but probably even, even tighter because it's someone else's money. What were the key things that you thought about in, in any sort of element when you were deciding how, where kind of to invest? What, what were the key things? Sure. Um, the, the really truthful answer to that is yield target. So we had a yield target of around 10%. I say around 10%. We wanted a yield of 10% um, on the money that we invested. How realistic that was looking back, probably not as realistic as I'd have liked it to have been. Um, unencumbered, of course, we're talking now. We're not talking, um, we're not talking leveraged. So basically that yield target led us to the sort of strategies um, and areas that we wanted to invest in. So, I mean, it's not um, it's not uncommon knowledge that the north of England is a place where you can get higher yields, um, properties cheaper and rents, um, you know, whilst cheaper are comparably higher um, to some places in the south. So that worked well for us because we are based in the northeast of England anyway. I'm on the bite to that side. And then it was, it was, again, it was going out there and researching as much as humanly possible on how we could get, the best possible yield on our money. Um, and that, that led us to the different strategies that we've used. Um, and we've used everything from just like standard buy to lets. Um, we've got a, sh- a student HMO. Uh, we've got three holiday lets. Um, we're doing a commercial to resi conversion at the moment. So it, it's not really, it wasn't a case of, right, we found this one great, fantastic area and this one fantastic strategy that worked in that area. It was more, uh, right, well, there's lots of strategies out there. I'm sure they're all going to work, but let's just find specific deals where they where they work to meet the targets that we've set ourselves. Mm. And, you know, I suppose that sort of target of 10% that you set, was it just kind of set based on like, okay, here's the money, here's how much we want to receive, that equals 10%? Or was it like, well, bank's given us nothing, stock's given us this, we want something higher? How did you come to that number? Sure. Um, I think it was a combination of factors. I think, as you say, first, uh, money's earning nothing in the bank. In fact, it's depreciating in value at the moment. So, um, you know, we need to get it out of there. Obviously, we do have a portfolio of stocks and shares as well. Um, returns on that can go up and down. You know, if that averaged out at six to seven percent, I guess the ten percent yield target was based on the fact that because we're so hands-on, we would like it to yield more than those much more passive investments that we make. And also, it, it seemed possible in the beginning, having done the research. It seemed like a it was a lofty target, but it definitely seemed achievable. And we wanted to set ourselves the target of of getting the maximum possible back from the capital we we were deploying. Um, and, and I guess that boils down to just being competitive. And I, I'm not even sure competitive with who, but it, it's like, well, if if people are out there and they're running a property company and they're getting really good yields, if I'm going to run a property company, I want to get really good yields as well. And that was around the number that I, that I sort of considered being, you know, I looked at people's deals and I thought they were, they were good deals. They were, they were better than average. Um, and I guess we wanted to be better than average. Mm. And, you know, what about, I suppose there's, there's obviously a risk element, you know, you, at that point you hadn't done property before, obviously you were a businessman, you, you kind of know what you're doing to an extent, but you've got a fair amount of money to invest in things that, you know, I suppose compared to other things, property can be quite forgiving. Um, you know, I know that as well from personal experience. But like, 
what about like geography? So when it comes to, you know, do we put it all in one place? Do we spread it out? But then we don't want to have tenants all over the shop. What were your thoughts or calculations behind like the risk and geography element? Sure. That's an, that's an interesting question. Um, I think when you're making any type of investment, right, diversification is hugely important. So, and it, you can be diversified on so many levels. So, you know, you can have different strategies in different locations. You can have different types of investments. You can have different types of tenants, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it was definitely at the forefront of our thinking that we didn't want to be overly invested in one particular strategy in one particular area. Um, and now it's, it's sometimes difficult to get away from that when you do find good areas that have high yields, but we were lucky in that the research that we've done allowed us to find different geographic locations that we could invest in. So for example, we knew that, um, Newcastle and Gateshead and other parts of the Northeast as well had good buy to let yields. And when we considered buy to let a strategy that, that really wasn't going anywhere. However, one thing that we never set out to do was build a portfolio of HMOs. And that's more to do with a belief that it's not necessarily a, a way that, that we would like to live. And I'm not knocking anyone that wants to live like that. But um, what, what I mean is I like space um, and I don't want to say solitude because that makes me sound like a recluse, but I, I like to have my own space. Um, and I lived as a student and, and it wasn't the happiest time in my life, although I got a lot of enjoyment out of other aspects. The, the specific living together with other people who I was almost forced to live with wasn't, wasn't always ideal. Um, so yeah, back to the, back to the geography aspect. I think it was more, let's look at all the opportunities that we've got and then let's, let's be clever or clever. Let's be strategic in not investing all of our money into one specific location because things can change. Um, for example, there are areas of Newcastle uh, that required landlord license fees at the times. And those areas that were, were being touted by estate agents as potentially the next areas that might require those fees. So, you know, although they, they would have good yields now, do you want to get into those areas and have your yields sort of hurt potentially down the line by the onset of those fees? So I think, you know, we looked at things like that and we we were careful in that we only wanted to a certain amount of exposure. Now it's annoying to hear people talk about a certain amount of exposure. What, what is that really? But I'd be lying if we said, right, it was 20% in this. We only wanted 20% in one geographic area. It was, it was more what we'll have as much as we can tolerate versus the quality of yield that we can expect in that location. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that does. And I think that's a good way of, that's a good way of looking at it, I think. And, you know, when people are starting out, maybe there's, there's more of that that should be done. Um, and I think, yeah, agents, you know, they show you the nearest shithole. Oh yeah. Up and coming, up and coming is, is a key word for shithole. Um, I mean, there are obviously some areas that are up and coming, which is great. And, you know, you can kind of work that out, but yeah, I, I like the way you kind of, you looked at that. Actually, you know, all of this. So before you invested, how long did you, so before that first investment, how long did you spend like thinking about all of this and I suppose planning your strategy? Yeah, a long time. And 
I, it wasn't a case of, you know, night and day, I was sat thinking and planning and thinking and planning, but it was more a case of over time being exposed to more potential opportunities. And then the cumulative effect of that eventually dictating our strategy. Um, you know, it's very, it would be very corporate to sit down and be like, right, you know, this is phase one, this is phase two, this is phase three of what we're going to do and just have a complete plan in place. I'm also not sure it's that realistic to, to be able to plan with in that much detail. So I'm, you know, I'm hesitant to say, cause we didn't, oh, we had this great plan at the beginning. We knew exactly what we were going to do from the research we'd done. It was more a case of opportunities would come along from the research that we'd done. We'd consider them and then we'd decide whether we wanted to add them in or we wanted to initially at the very start, we just wanted to see that the opportunity was there or the, we wanted to see potential before we started making moves. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think as, as people are kind of listening to and, and they will know like the strategy and the approach, you know, will evolve over time and it will evolve with the projects you're taking on and what you're doing and how you're going to do it. And also, I suppose if you're using one pot of cash, you know, when that starts to perhaps get worn down and then you have to, you know, well, yeah, do something different perhaps. When you are looking for a deal, are there, I mean, obviously yield is the kind of, you know, is the thing you're looking for, but are there any other factors as, as small as they might be that kind of might put you off a deal or might really put you onto a deal? Sure. I think it's more, so when you say put us, what will put us off a deal, um, poor yields will put us off a deal, but what really, you know, things that will sway, sway the decision-making process for us, um, I guess they're the same as, as, as everyone. You might look at a deal, you know, and the yield might be slightly lower than, than your target yield, but it might be in an area that you feel is going to have better capital appreciation, for example. So you might take a view on that deal um, simply because you believe that there are other upsides. Um, and there are also non-financial upsides to deals, which we've definitely taken into consideration. Um, we have... Um, three holiday lets in our portfolio at the moment. One of them specifically is in a location that we um, utilize ourselves. Um, um, it's a place that we've got, you know, a, a good affinity with. So really that, that deal, um, it won't meet a yield target of 10% probably, um, but we did it and we invested into the, the refurb more than we normally would because of the non-financial upside that we were getting, because of the pleasure that it would give us to go there and stay there and, and have that opportunity. So, you know, it, on the one hand, it, often this industry can feel like it's all about the numbers, but then on the other hand, I think he, it's okay to bring your personal sort of your personal position into it and, and factor that into any decision you make. And to be honest, that goes for any investments that that anybody makes. I mean, you know, property is a time intensive investment. And if you don't have that time, then maybe you should look, look at other options or, you know, look at sourcing sources or look at, you know, investing with developers instead of, you know, the much more hands-on approach. So, so yeah, I mean, we'll definitely consider a number of factors, obviously yields the biggest, but 
I wouldn't discourage anyone from from bringing in anything that they just feel is relevant to their situation, to be honest. And, you know, once you have, I think you kind of touched on this earlier, once you've used the initial amount and it's all in properties, you know, because you're currently sitting at 972K, you've got about 350K in projects in development at the moment. What happens, well, well, what's going to happen, I suppose, when the initial amount, or this sounds like more than that, is is used up, and obviously a lot of them unencumbered, is it then a case of you're going to slap them all on mortgages or you're going to bridge to sweat the equity? What, what do you think you're going to do at that point? It's a good question. Um, I think I think what we're probably going to do is we're going to look to rebalance the portfolio and move poorer performing assets out. Um, so that'll be that'll be definitely one of our priorities once, you know, once the investable capital has been deployed. Um, and then I think we'll probably look to cherry pick deals moving forward. Um, so we'll, we'll make assessments on potential deals and they'll need to be really strong reasons um, why we would refinance one of our current projects in order to add this to our portfolio. I don't necessarily have the approach that we just want to go on endlessly building a property portfolio. What we really want to do is we want to build an efficient portfolio. And by efficient, I think I mean one that runs efficiently. So is as passive as it can be, um, but also one that is efficient in terms of returns. So, you know, if we've got assets that we bought earlier, earlier on in the sort of process that don't quite return as well as assets that we've bought more recently, then there's no harm in selling them and swapping them out and trying to make the portfolio as efficient as possible on that level as well. And you may have touched on this earlier, but the, the kind of projects you're looking at, would they be classed as, well, no, they wouldn't be because they're, so, so for people listening, just to make this really clear, you are buying these, these properties um, with, with cash you're doing no refurb to it and letting them out straight away? No, sure. So we're we're buying cash and we're refurbing. Um, one of the reasons that we're doing that is because to meet yield targets, you need to buy cheap. Uh, to buy cheap, you've usually got to buy with a property with at least some, some sort of issue. Um, I don't know anybody that's out there buying, um, you know, ready to go properties, and meeting yield targets of 10% unencumbered, for example. Um, if you are, congratulations, <laughs> we're not. Um, so, you know, we, it, it's a case of having to put that, that refurbishment legwork into these deals um, to, to get the yields where we want them to be. Mm, that makes sense. Okay. And I mean, is there a sort of, end point you know will you reach a portfolio value of x and say you know what we're, we're good it's okay now we're done um probably not um i say that because i'm still relatively young i'm 33 um i don't have any desire to just stop working so it, it seems unlikely that there's there will come a point in the near in the near term or even medium term where we'll stop looking for opportunities um in in any of our businesses but especially this one um so no we don't kind of have an, an end point if that makes sense um 
I guess some people, you know, some people might in terms of their retirement, they might just be looking to build a, a small portfolio that will support them through that. I think at this stage, we're still looking to build a business. And whilst, um, whilst people describe property as, you know, I'm a property investor, I kind of feel like most people are in fact in, in the property business as opposed to just being investors, because t- to me, investor really has this, um, this kind of hands-off feel and we're very much hands-on. It feels like we're running another business at the moment. Um, I mean, down the line, if we stop buying deals and we just, you know, take the passive income, then maybe that'll change. But, but right now it definitely feels like we're running two businesses. Yeah. I think that's a good way of putting it. I think, it, you know, once they're all tenanted and once they're all there, I think you become more of an investor, but it's not like holding stocks and shares where you, literally do nothing and you know the return kind of comes it's it is different to that um but yeah when you're when you're building it and growing it you are you are the accountant the marketer the bloody you're everything all at once sometimes so yeah I, i know what you mean there and with with this portfolio and with kind of what you've done so far what is perhaps maybe one or two? What are some of the biggest mistakes that you've made that now going forward you don't anymore? Oh, sure, we've made we've made so many, and we are still making so many. Um, I think probably the it's it's hard to quantify which of the you know which of the biggest, but three three that we've definitely made. Um, we've we've worked to build the schedules and not our own in the past. Um, so we've kind of been coerced into moving too quickly on certain projects um, because the builders got two weeks here that he could do this um, or could do that. And I think ultimately that's come back to bite us. And and what I would say to anybody that's doing any sort of refurb or building work um, on their properties is, you know, have your own schedule and you are ultimately in control and don't don't relinquish that control, um, which, which can be harder when you've got persuasive people around you. But but ultimately, it's your it's your ship to sail, and don't be afraid to say no or to um, you know to run it exactly how you want to run it. Because ultimately, it's your it's 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 you that the book stops with. So you've got to be comfortable um, in how you've done that. So yeah, definitely one would be. Um, not letting builders run away with projects or, or not letting them sort of mold them to their timescales as opposed to ours. I think also paying builders too much up front was a mistake that we've made in the past um, and not really having a, a fully clear payment schedule in place. That's come back to bite us um, on a couple of different projects where builders might not be motivated enough to do the work to a certain time frame because we have probably paid too much up front or you know they've asked for money when they've been short of cash and we haven't really had a clear defined payment schedule with them. So it's been more difficult to just be like, look, no, you haven't done X, Y, Z, so you don't get paid. Um, uh, common theme dealing with builders is it's difficult. Um, and I think yep. one, one mistake that we did, we did make is we probably jumped into quickly in terms of the first deal that we made. Um, and I'm kind of hesitant to say that as a mistake because obviously it led to everything that came after and, and each deal has been a learning experience. So although there's been many mistakes, those mistakes now all have quite a lot of value. Um, but you know, the yields that we get from that project aren't great. And honestly, 
it's probably a property that we'll look to sell and rebalance in the in the not too distant future. So, you know, I, I guess mm. really when you're doing your first deal or when you're doing your early deals, don't don't just jump in because you want to be involved in property, which to an extent we did do. Um, and when you're kind of when you're running your numbers, you know, and you get you're deep in the spreadsheet work. Just just run honest numbers. Don't try and start being like, oh, well, we could get this done for five hundred pounds less, and this done for this, and this done for this, and then you know suddenly the deal just works. So you're like, right, great, we'll make an offer. Um, that just in practice it doesn't work. In fact, in practice the opposite happens, and things always end up costing slightly more. In my experience, maybe I'm just a, an optimistic, you know, deal analyzer, but. Regardless, you know, things come up that were unexpected and you end up spending more on a deal than less. So so be honest with your numbers um, would, would definitely be something I would advise because it's a mistake that we've made in the past. Mm. And, you know, especially on single lets and especially anyone listening who's doing the BRR model in particular, like an extra grand, an extra whatever it is on a refurb, like it really does affect your ROI to the level where like it can change the dynamic of that whole deal. Because sometimes, you know, when you're doing that kind of stuff, the margins can be really tight. Obviously, on bigger projects, you probably got a bit more fat, you know, a bit more fat to chew through. But just a note for people listening, as David said there, please be cautious, be conservative with your figures. Because, hey, if you do better, then, I mean, you're only going to be happy, right? And if you do the same, well, you expected it anyway. So, David, you know, a lot of what you're... Well, I suppose everything you've purchased so far, you're keeping as as rentals. Um, but are you have? Well, I suppose have you and will you do any flip projects? So not rebalancing it because of poor performance, but will you do something purely to generate a lump of cash, like a, just a pure buy to sell flip? Um. Yeah. So it's definitely something we've considered doing. Um up to this point, the research and the numbers that I've run, probably because they're more local geographically to us, because that's now where our, our kind of build team is. It's not really the the marg- the margins or the, the financial gain from doing that hasn't quite been there. Um, I'm yet to come across a project with enough sort of potential upside on the on the exit to make me want to do that flip. But if we, if we did find a project that we thought had it, we would definitely consider it. Mm, That makes sense. And property it's, it's one of many, many asset classes and types and things like that. You've obviously put a lot into property and are continuing to do so. Um, Is it wise? Is it safe to be so invested in property? And then the second part of that question is, you know, are you invested in any other type of investment or asset classes? Um, I'm not a financial advisor. (laughs) So good. Yeah. No one is here listening. There's disclaimer. Do not sue us. Um, But in terms of how I feel about it, I don't like to be all in on anything. So if that's property, if that's one business that I run, um, if that's a portfolio, if it's investment in one specific company, um, because the the less diversification you have between what you're doing, the more one significant one change can have a, a huge impact on that that one thing. So, 
it, you can diversify within investment types. So you can diversify within property by having different types of properties in different locations that operate with different strategies. Um, so I think it probably is okay to be all in on property to some extent. People are going to have to make their own judgment on how much leverage that they're comfortable with within that, because the one thing that you are often all in on in property is the leverage that you have. All of your deals are leveraged against, um, you know, against the bank. So if interest rates are to go up, what sort of margin do you have built into your deal to compensate for that? And I think at the moment we've, we've existed in a climate where interest rates have been so low for such a long time. That I'm not sure that's at the forefront of many people's minds, but I would encourage people to go and stress test your deals against rising interest rates. Um, because that will probably be a really good indicator as to whether it's okay for you to be all in on property or not. Um, because I guess I see that as being the number one risk factor, um, you know, at the core of most people's portfolios. Mm. I like that. Very sensible. And I suppose in, in addition to that, you also loan money out to um, other developers. I know, I know we kind of spoke about that. Is that just to kind of diversify within property and make some like genuine, like passive income? Yes, um, that was that's that's exactly the the strategy with that. Um, it it was also it's also a case of if we have capital sat doing nothing, there's the opportunity to cost that we discussed earlier of it doing nothing. Um, so you know if there is an opportunity out there with property developers um, to loan money to to complete their specific deals, and we're happy to look at it. Um, I think we've got about a hundred and. 55,000 loaned out um, between three different developers at the moment. Um, it's proven to be a good passive income source. However, beginning, I've encountered my first issue with that, um, which I'm is I'm not going to go into too much detail about, but basically the loan is overdue um, and there's various different reasons behind that. It, it, it remains to be seen what will happen, um, what will happen to that specific part of that. But again, it's, we do it in such a way that we would never, or we try not to overcommit to one particular developer or one particular project. Um, and we do have our parameters set out very stringently and um, in writing the consequences of late payment and all those things that come along with that that type of strategy. Unfortunately, as investments go, some will go well, some will not go well. Um, people will make mistakes. We will make mistakes. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of people might, might view what I've just said there as being like, Oh man, maybe, you know, I'm not sure I want to look at property development loans because, they, they can go wrong and I'm telling you they can go wrong, but if they're part of an overall diversified strategy, then, then the fact that it has gone wrong shouldn't really have too much impact on your overall business. Um, and that kind of relates back nicely to what you were saying about, is it okay to be all in on property? Well, sure, but it's not okay to be all in on one specific thing. You know, if, if we'd have fronted up our entire um, deployable capital to that one specific developer and we were in this situation now, we would not be feeling good about it. 
Mm. That makes sense. Again, that diversification, having strict parameters, whether you're loaning money, whether you're spending it, whether you're investing, you know, whether you're analyzing a deal, you need to have certain things that you, you stick to. Um, and of course, the more experienced you are, the more you do of it, the kind of easier it becomes, I suppose, and the, the quicker and smoother it happens. So David, you're still running your, um, marketing business. What is, what is in the sort of plans for 2021? Are you going to, continue doing that in property have you got kind of bigger aims for properties or what are you gonna be doing this year um hopefully going back to the pub at some point in the not too distant future <laughs> that might be more difficult than anything else <laughs> um in, on, the, on the property front i think one thing that we really want to do is add a foreign property to our portfolio um, and the reason for that is uh, is more swayed towards the personal benefit that we'll get from having that. So if we can create um, an investment in a foreign location that we like to utilize, if that investment has a reasonable return and the added benefit of being able to go there ourselves, I think, you know, that, that would be something that would not be, it's not going to be a, a huge game changer for the business, but it might be a really, it might have a really positive impact on our lives. And I think, you know, that's, it's worth doing purely because of that. Um, whether again, that's the possibility of doing that this year is not looking too fruitful given the current climate. Um, so I, I guess with long term, we'd like to, we'd like to get to a point where we were, we were somewhere around 200,000 pounds investment income from property. Uh, we're not there yet and we've got a lot of work to do to get there. So again, it, it means finding deals, um, which is, proven more difficult this year for me than it has in any previous years um but we'll keep trying um i think everyone's feeling that as well at the moment yeah yeah it it, it does seem that the market has taken a turn whereby things are selling way above my numbers aren't working on a lot of asking prices at the moment and a lot of reduced asking prices as well um and i think from what I read, a lot of people are finding that the same. So, you know, it is going to be a year where I think people can expect to to maybe have to work a bit harder to find their deals, but that doesn't mean they're not out there and, and definitely don't let that put you off. Um, we're still trying. And I know there are a lot of people out there that will do great deals in, in 2021. So, um, you know, you might just have to work a bit harder to find them. Um, definitely. And we're always, we're always looking to maintain the current level of performance within our other business. So that'll be a goal for 2021. Um, and as I mentioned to you, when I, when I kind of emailed across, um, one of my goals for, for this year is to build a bit of readership on, um, on a blog that I've started writing, which is kind of just, it's kind of just a general investing blog, but it, it definitely has a, a focus on property because that's what we're doing at the moment. And um, that's smartinvestor.blog. And I think the re there's, there's a couple of reasons for doing that. I think one is it, it really helps like, frame my own thoughts. And one thing that, you know, one target or goal for the future that I have for myself is definitely to network more within the community. So if by writing that blog and by doing things like this podcast, I can become more engaged with the community, then, you know, I think that that has real value um, from all sorts of, from all sorts of things like jumping onto Facebook and asking for a trade recommendation in a local area, you know, or, or to just, you know, hitting up someone that you've, you kind of, 
got a got a base level of friendship with where you can just be like oh look i know you guys did this project um you know we're thinking about doing a similar project anything to consider um you know would you would you have a quick look over my numbers um you know so yeah net, network more within the community definitely a goal for this year um keep growing the the investment income from property and look to look to add a foreign property to our portfolio if that's going to be possible Awesome. And we'll add a link to the blog in the show notes. Um, is there a technology or resource or app or you know, something that you can't live without in property? Um, uh, honest, honestly, like I don't have, I, I don't really have a kind of a one thing that I can, you know, give your listeners that's going to be like, Oh, you should jump on this app. It's going to be fantastic. Um, the, the thing that I spend most of my time on is probably Excel and that's pretty boring, but it does everything that I need to do. Um, I'm, I'm pretty, I run, my wife goes crazy at me because I run like multiple to-do lists on Google notes or Apple notes or whatever. Um, and she thinks that there's no organization there, but it works for me. So find, find what works for you and, and just, and just do it. I don't have a, a one specific thing that I would, I would jump up to recommend podcasts. Podcasts are great. Listen to podcasts. Tertial's podcast, the only one people need. Yep, sorted. Thanks for agreeing. Um, if you could have dinner with any three people, dead or alive, what would you eat and who would it be with? Uh, so I kind of cheated on this. I, I've heard you ask this question to people before, so I, I have a pre-prepared <laughs> answer. Mainly because I was I was listening to one of your previous podcasts and I was thinking, damn, if I'm going to record this with Ted, she's going to ask me this question and I'm not going to have a clue what to say. <laughs> so I thought I'd give it some thought and my three people um, would be Tim Ferriss, who I've heard you talk about in the past. I'm sure a lot of your listeners know who that is. Uh, he's kind of like a mm-hmm. life guru type character. Um, obviously, he's got a very popular yep. podcast as well. Um, number two would be Ray Dalio, who's a hedge fund manager. Um I would love to sit and pick his brain over dinner. And number one is a guy called Aaron Wall, um, who I imagine most of your listeners won't know who that is. He's a um, old school SEO. So he's done a lot of, been in search engine optimization for a lot of years and has a lot of really, really interesting insights. Um, in terms of what we would eat, we were recently, we recently in Whitby and we had... Um, grilled lobster with garlic butter and it was like one of the best things i've eaten for i don't know 10 years so so that'll do nicely i love it lobster with the gang you know what yeah ray dalio would be epic i don't know him well but tim ferris he's yeah he would definitely be on my list he is there's just so much i think you'd have a lot of fun with him but you'd also learn so much about just all sorts of like random shit that could help you one day. And like, yeah, it's like he hacks life and just knows. Stuff. So, so, so who, who else is on your list though? You always ask other people this question, but I think it's quite uh, a hard question know, to I, answer. It, it is. I, I knew you might ask it. I thought you might ask it to me back. <sighs> you know, I don't actually know. I need to, I need to think about it because I don't like a lot of people, <laughs> but I'd like a lot of people. So <laughs> I would say, Tim Ferriss is definitely one of them. Well, surely James Sahota has um, got to be on your list, right? I would, he would be serving us the food. Um, he, <laughs> no, you know what? I actually have, I can't even answer it because Tim Ferriss is one. And then every episode I'll release one more every time. Okay. Fair enough. 
Um, David, thank you so much for coming on to the TED Talks podcast. Uh, if people do want to get a hold of you, obviously I'll put your blog in the show notes, but what's the best way to sort of say hi and get in touch with you? Honestly, it's via the blog, uh, which is smartinvestor.blog. I'm not on, I'm not really on Twitter or Instagram. Um, you can, if you hit me up via the contact page on the blog, then I'll 100% happy to answer any questions or um, you know, touch base with anyone who's listening. I am on Facebook, so you might see me kicking around in um, in a couple of the property groups, but I'm not a big social media fan. So it's never going to be like, it's never going to be something that, yeah, go to the blog if you want to talk to me. I'm, I'm happy to talk to anyone. If you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube for more great content.